Welcome back, dear listener, to another episode of The Forge. Last week, at the previous episode, I focused a lot on covenants. I focused on covenants because God has chosen to deal with his people and their redemption through covenants. And we talked about the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, but there's others too. Um, There's the Noahic covenant, the Davidic covenant. In creation, God entered into a covenant of works with Adam. Uh, We call it a covenant of works because Adam was called to obey God. The law at that time was to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just one rule. And we call it, like I said, a covenant of works because if Adam kept the law, he would live. If he violated the law, he and all his posterity would die. So it's an interesting thing for us to think about when we begin to see God through his covenants. Concerning our text today, R.C. Sproul said, quote, Ironically, that we are justified by Christ alone also means that the only way any of us will be saved is by works. And I've actually got that in the show notes if you want to look up the reference for that. Now, when I first read that from R.C. Sproul, I thought, what in the world is he getting at here? Because I know that he doesn't believe in a works-based salvation. Did I I actually read that correctly? And as it turns out, I did read it correctly. And I had to read it through probably two or three times. R.C. is correct from a certain point of view. And that's what I came to realize as I continued reading. You see... We are all under the work of the first Adam, and that resulted in disobedience. Or we are under the second Adam, and that is the work of Christ. The work of Christ means that basically, if I could sum it all up, Christ kept the law perfectly. So when you think of it this way, we are saved by works. And the question is, whose works are we talking about, right? And that's what R.C. was getting at in that quote. In the New Testament, Jesus announces that there is a new covenant that is made in his blood. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 9.22 that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. This new covenant in Christ is the covenant of grace. The distinction between works and grace is important because any redemption that has ever happened since the fall of humanity is 100% because of God's grace. So with that said, dear listener, let's get into the word of God. Galatians 3, 19 through 22. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator does not mediate for only one, but God is one. Is the the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given, which could have given life, truly Righteousness would have been by the law, but the scripture has confirmed all, I'm sorry, 
the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. You know, it's amazing how much truth is packed into just those few verses, 19 through 22. That's it. That's all we read. But there's so much there. The first point I'd like to bring out to you today is the purpose of the law. What was the purpose of the law? You see, the law was not given to make us better. It was actually given to make us worse. Martin Luther explained it like this, quote, The law cannot do anything except that with its light it illumines the conscience for sin, death, and judgment, and the hate and wrath of God. Before law comes, I am smug and do not worry about sin. When the law comes, it shows me sin, death, and hell. Surely this is not being justified. It is being sentenced, being made an enemy of God, being condemned to death and hell. Therefore, the principal purpose in the law of the law in theology is to make men not better, but worse. That is, it shows them their sin so that by the recognition of sin, they may be humbled, frightened, and worn down, and so may long for grace and for the blessed offspring. If you know anything about Martin Luther, you know that he struggled with a guilty conscience, and he eventually realized that there was no amount of confessions to a Roman Catholic priest, there was no pilgrimage to Rome, there was no purchase of indulgences, no denying of his own flesh or any other thing that he could come up with that would ever set him right with God. It's only when, I, when we see ourselves before the law of God that we see our sin. And this is what Martin Luther is getting at here. Weren't there always transgressions, though, even before the law? Of course there were. Yes, there were. This idea of transgressions, which Paul is bringing out here in verse 19, is the idea of stepping over a boundary. And that is exactly what Adam did in the garden. He stepped over the boundary which God had put in place. And so you have this time period really from the fall of Adam all the way up to Noah's time. And as time went on, there was really a deadening of conscience. Adam's descendants went so far in their disobedience that God destroyed the earth with a flood. And we know almost nothing about this time in human history. Why? Because it's all been wiped away by the floodwaters. What we know we have in the Bible and perhaps some of the ancient, ancient artifacts that we look at could have been possibly from that flood period or pre-flood period, but we just don't know. Because the sin of man had gotten so bad that God destroyed the world with a flood. And then you have this period from Noah. Noah gets off the boat. God enters into a covenant with Noah, says, I'm not going to flood the earth again. And the sign of that covenant was the rainbow. And so from Noah to Abraham is our next time period I want to look at. And even the descendants of Abraham, they just got used to committing sin after sin. And they excused themselves. And some may have thought that since they had the promise of Abraham, they did not need to have any concern about what they were doing or what they had done. 
Others deceived themselves into thinking they did not even need a redeemer because they were children of Abraham. Why do I need a redeemer to justify me by faith? I have the promise of Abraham. I bear the mark of circumcision on my body. I'm good. So why was the law added? The law was added to show the depth of our transgressions. And I want to get back to that word transgression. We stepped over the boundary. You see, the law is very uh, specific. It's a wake-up call. The Apostle Paul is saying that the law of Moses shows us the need for the promise of Abraham. Remember, Abraham came first. Abraham was given the promise by God. There was a covenant that God made with Abraham. And this was before the sign of circumcision. This was before the law of Moses. And God said, I will keep the covenant promise. So when man looks at the law, if he is honest, he will see himself as someone who is in sin who is an, an offense to the one true and living God. Today we study the law because it serves to help us remember that we do not measure up. We don't measure up. When we look at the law, we see two things. Number one, we see ourselves as we truly are. We're imperfect. We've got character flaws. We are sinful and we should not like what it is that we're seeing. The second thing we see, we see God. God as he truly is, his perfectness, his holy character, his attributes are on display in the law of God. And we should be filled with a mix of adoration and a holy fear. So one of the questions we get a lot as Christians, it comes up in conversations. Does the law still apply today? And I would suggest that the demands of the law have not um, somehow diminished. It hasn't gotten to be less. The law did not have its start with Moses, and it is not irrelevant today. The law of God can be studied through the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and several other parts of the Old Testament, where you can actually see practical examples of it. Now, when I was going through seminary, I was taught uh, that the law of God can be divided into three parts, uh, ceremonial, judicial, and moral law. And this is pretty much the um, accepted consensus among those who study the Bible that the law is divided into three major categories. Now, these are man-made divisions. And what I mean by that is it's an effort to help us study and learn, um, but you're not going to be able to open up the Bible and go to a chapter that's entitled the judicial law of God. You have to read the full counsel of God's word and you have to apply a balanced and even and fair, what's called a hermeneutic, a way to study and interpret the Bible. You've got to be consistent with it and you go all the way through and you pull out from the Bible those parts that fall into these different categories. And you should ask yourself, am I looking at a judicial law here? Is it ceremonial? Is it moral? 
where where does it what kind of message is God getting through in this portion of the law? Now, there's things that are sins against God, which may not be considered crimes, according to the government. For example, abortion is the murder of children. It is the murder of the preborn. Any method of preventing the life of that little child is murder. Any method that is used to stop the life of that child is murder. It's a scary thought because in our government, it's not against the law to kill your baby. You can have an abortion. You can kill your baby. Now, there are other things that uh, may be crimes against the government but they are not sins against God. For example, the government comes in and says there's a sickness going around. And so to prevent the spread of that sickness, we're going to close all the churches down. So you can no longer meet. You can no longer call people to the waters of baptism. You can no longer call people to eat at the Lord's table and at the same time practice social distancing. This would be an example of where the government has overstepped its boundaries and I would commit a crime against the government so that I do not sin against God. I hope that makes sense to you. So you need to ask yourself whenever you're looking at something, think in a category. What category does this fall into? This, you know, whatever it is that you're looking at at the time. There may be um, things that you need to consider. Is it a sin? Is it a crime? Is it both? You see what I'm saying? It's important that we understand something as it pertains to the law of God. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. It's interesting Good Christians, they know that verse, or at least they're familiar with that verse. They've heard it before, but I wonder if we truly, truly believe it. I feel like most Christians read that like this. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets, but I really did because none of that stuff applies to you guys anymore. <laughs> now, of course, I'm being sarcastic, but I want to challenge your thinking a little bit here you're Christian. So let's talk about ceremonial law. Ceremonial law was that part of the law that was meant to be um, physical representations of God's holiness and the holiness that he expected from his people. You know, I was taught that this part of the law dealt with sacrifices and feast days and the temple and circumcision and many other aspects of how God was to be worshiped how he is to be remembered in the Old Testament. And I don't know that I was ever told to just totally dismiss this part of the law, but it certainly was not emphasized in any of the teaching or instruction that I've ever had. But let's remember the words of Jesus that I just read. 
Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And remember too, dear listener, God's law is forever. Psalm 119.89, God's law is not going to pass away. His word endures forever. So I want you to think about this part of the law and ask yourself, is it still in effect? I'm going to tell you, yes, it's still in effect. However, it is completely fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You see, Christ is the great high priest, according to Hebrews 4, 14, all the way through 5, verse 6. Christ himself is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, Hebrews 9, 12 through 14. You are the temple now of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Your baptism is a sign of the, new, of the new covenant, just as circumcision was a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Read Colossians 2, 11 through 12. The Lord's table is the New Testament Passover feast. Read Exodus 12, 25 through 27 and 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. We still have a ceremonial law. And it is fulfilled in Christ. Do you see that? I hope you do. So let's talk about the moral law. The moral law. Moral law addresses behavior and relationships between God and human beings. Or actually, I probably should say it this way. Between human beings and God. And also between humans and humans. Um, often the first thing we think of when we think about the moral law is the Ten Commandments. And this is what God gave to Moses after the Israelites left Egypt. It's found in Exodus 20, if you want to look these up. The first four deal with our relationship to God, and the last six deal with our relationship that we should have with our fellow human beings. You see, if I love God, I will not say his name unless I'm praying to him. I won't use his name as a cuss word. If I love God, I will not worship any other God. I will not make an idol and bow down to that idol. And I will set aside the Lord's day for worship and fellowship with other believers. The other six commandments, if I love my neighbor, I will not kill my neighbor. I won't steal from them. I won't covet what my neighbor has. I won't lie about my neighbor. I won't commit adultery with my neighbor's wife. I won't do anything in any way to hurt my neighbor's family. And if I love my parents, I will obey my parents. Now, why did I say it that way? Why did I list out those Ten Commandments quite like that? Because the Ten Commandments come down to this. Love God, love neighbor. These laws deal with loving God and loving our neighbor. If you love God and you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the Ten Commandments. Hopefully that makes sense to you. There's not one thing here in these Ten Commandments that has been abolished 
because of Christ. Consider who God is and consider that other human beings bear the image of their creator. Why is it that we should not kill, we should not steal, and all the rest? Why? Because when you do those things, you are striking out against an image bearer of God. When we see our fellow human being, even if they are not a believer in Jesus Christ, they still have his image upon them. And we, as believers, as Christians, we ought to respect that. Up next is the judicial law. Judicial law is concerned with things like property ownership, borders, um, cities of refuge for suspected murderers. And I'll just take a pause right there. Um, The reason there were cities of refuge is think about if um, someone was... Uh, suspected of killing another person. And that family of the victim, they decide that they're going to take the law into their own hands and they're going to get vengeance for their fallen relative. So they come after the suspected murder, murderer to take vengeance, to get their revenge. The suspect, the suspected murderer could run to the city of refuge and wait until all the evidence could be gathered and could be brought into a court of law to determine if they were innocent or guilty. Friends, have you ever heard of things like the right to remain silent? Have you ever heard of things like innocent until proven guilty? This is where it comes from. It comes from the judicial law of Moses. It comes from God's law. Now it happens to be written in our constitution in this country, but the question is, where did they get it from? They got it from the law of God. The law of God takes care of business transactions, uh, protecting citizens, equal weights and measures uh, in the marketplace. In other words, you've got to be fair in your dealing and business. Uh, You're not allowed to charge excess usury, which would be interest rates. Um, Judicial law deals deals with protection of the innocent, protection of national sovereignty, restitution, capital crimes, and the list goes on and on. These were to regulate society and to help those in leadership positions to make decisions. And today we would call those people in leadership positions positions, lawmakers, representatives, city council members, and we count on these people to settle disputes and determine what crime is and to mete out the punishment. I bring all of this up because I want you to think, dear Christian, do you think the judicial law of God still applies to us today? My answer to you is, in case you haven't been able to tell already, yes. The law of God is a law that applies. Now, even though this law was given to Israel, it applies to the entire world. Now, why would I say that? I say it because um, scripture bears that to be true, and I'm actually going to be covering a couple of scriptures in the next episode. You're just going to have to wait where I can show you that the law of God applies to every single one of us. 
even though it was given to Israel. But I also want you to think about this. History shows us that to the extent that a nation follows the law of God is the extent that that nation will enjoy peace and prosperity. I honestly believe that if our society would adopt the law of God as the law of our land, it would solve so many issues for us. So yes, the law may have changed in terms of its administration, at least the ceremonial parts. But it still applies even today. So if someone were to ever come up to you and say something to the effect of, because I've heard these arguments myself, do you eat shellfish? Yes. Do you eat bacon? Yes. Do you wear fabrics with mixed clothing, uh, mixed fabric? Yes. Yes, I do. I wear mixed fabrics. Well, how can you do that and then turn around and say that homosexuality is wrong? Because the same law that tells you that you can't eat shellfish is the same law that tells you that homosexuality is wrong, according to you. Well, the answer is, friends, again, you have to think in categories. Homosexuality is dealing in moral law, how I am to care for my neighbor. Okay? All the other laws that I mentioned, shrimp and bacon and mixed fabrics, that falls under ceremonial law. And the ceremonial law has been fulfilled in Christ. He is all those things. And so I can wear mixed fabric. The whole purpose of mixed fabric, by the way, was to separate Israel from all the other nations. Another word for separate would be sanctify. My sanctification is in Christ. Hopefully you can see that. The reason homosexuality is wrong is because that violates the moral law of God. God flat out says you're not supposed to do those things. That is not how you love your neighbor. That is not how you respect marriage and the family. So you see, friends, there's a place for thinking about these things correctly and in the right categories. It should be obvious to us as we consider the law of God that its purpose was and still is to drive men to recognize their sin and to really be in despair. The realization of the law brought about by the Holy Spirit is what drives sinners to desire salvation from God. And it's God's sovereign grace that gives salvation to those who would believe. Romans 7:12 says, therefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. You see, the law points us to what grace alone can produce. The law is not wrong, but it is inferior to the promise. That brings us to our next point, the mediators of the law. 
So first we had the purpose of the law. We went through that. Now we're going to look at the mediators of the law, continuing on with part of verse 19 and all of verse 20, we see that the covenant of the law always was always inferior to the covenant of promise. The law has a supportive function, and we're going to show that a little later on. And as such, in a supportive function, the law does not upstage the gospel of grace. In other words, Paul is addressing issues here in verses 19 and 20. He's talking to the Galatians. He's dealing with the Judaizers, and he's saying, listen, the gospel of grace still has center stage. It still is superior over the works of the law. Let's consider the way the law of God was mediated versus the way the promise of God was mediated. First of all, we have this mention here in verse 19 about angels, angels and Moses. It's an interesting phrase. In the New American Standard, it puts it this way. It says, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator. According to Paul, the law was given by God to the angels, then to Moses, then to Israel. Now, it's not as crazy as it might sound. In Deuteronomy 33, verse 2, we're told, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came with ten thousands of his saints. From his right hand came a fiery law for them. Now, just as a side note, it says ten thousands of saints here. That doesn't mean only ten thousands. That is a Hebrew idiom that means a lot of them. You could not count them all. And the Hebrew word that is translated saints here is also translated holy ones in the New American Standard and the English Standard. For comparison, you can go look up Acts 7.53 and Hebrews 2.2. It does seem that these holy ones... And these other references that I just gave you, that scripture itself in ways that we're not fully told, we're not given the whole, whole explanation here, but the angels had something to do with bringing the word of God to humanity. I don't know what that is. I only know the little tiny bit that I've told you here. It's in the Bible, and so we believe it. Um. But angels had something to do with bringing the commandments to Moses. Paul is telling us here, and this is the real point, that there were mediators other than Jesus Christ when the law was received. The receiving of the law was an awesome thing. It was a forbidding thing. thing. It was kind of scary. The Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy passage that I just read from illustrates that to us. God warns the people uh, that when Moses goes up on the mountain to get the law, that the other people are not to approach the mountain of God. Don't even get near the base of the mountain. Don't come up to the mountain of God. In other words, you're not allowed up here. 
Another thing about the law, of course, it had the mediators. It was not a very welcoming atmosphere, but it was also a binding contract. It was a covenant that bound both parties, both God and Israel. You find this in the Mosaic Covenant in Deuteronomy 5.33. It says, you shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God has commanded you that you may live and that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days in the land which you shall possess. This is significant. It's a significant verse of scripture because it shows God's part under the law was to give life and to save life and to prolong life. Israel's part or man's part was to obey the law. But we've got an issue here. And the issue is this. There's no way that man can keep the law. He cannot keep his part of the covenant. Therefore, under the law and according to the covenant, God cannot grant salvation without breaking the terms of the covenant. Do you see that? Well, let's look at the covenant of promise. In the covenant of promise, there is no mediator. God himself comes down. In verse 20, we read of a mediator, and that tells us automatically when you have a mediator, that means you have a middleman. There's two parties involved. Yet God gave the covenant promise to Abraham directly as a friend to a friend. I would say person to person, except that God is not a person. He's not a man. <laughs> Read Genesis chapter 12, uh, Genesis chapter 15, and Genesis chapter 18, or you can go back and listen to the episodes that we did on the book of Genesis. But here's the thing. The promise of salvation by faith was one of those promises of God that came to Abraham in person. It was something that God does directly. It's so precious that there is no middleman. And this is the way he comes to all of us who are Christians. He comes in person. Jesus Christ is Yahweh in the flesh. God gave the covenant to Abraham personally. And because God is one in being, and since the covenant of promise rests entirely upon God, there is no need for a mediator. In the previous episode, we talked about how the covenant animals were split down the middle. Abraham was put to sleep and God alone walked through the middle of those sacrificed animals. No mediator because the covenant of promise is totally upon God. We look at Abraham. Abraham was a witness to it. He saw these things. He received all these blessings. He benefited from the covenant. However, he was not party to it. Well, what does that mean? In other words, he didn't walk through the center of those split animals. If the covenant was broken by Abraham or mankind, God would pay the price. 
God alone was the responsible party. This covenant of promise was and is purely divine in action. It doesn't rest upon two parties. It doesn't rest on my actions. God's covenant of promise is therefore superior to the covenant of law. Well, is there anything that the law accomplishes? Sure there is. After comparing the two, you look at the covenant of law and the covenant of promise, and you look at that, and it would be possible for us to kind of get the idea in our head that the law is against the promises of God. And Paul anticipates us asking this question and being a master of rhetorical questions himself. He asked, is the law then the promise against the promises of God? And then he answers, certainly not. Friends, God made both the promise and the law, and God does not work against himself. So what do we have going on here? Well, for starters, there's more here than just a conclusion. The language and the context used here expresses Paul's amazement that anyone would even imagine that the law could invalidate the promises of God. Remember back at the beginning of Galatians, where Paul says, I marvel at how quickly you've gone away from the faith and you're pursuing something that's not the real gospel. I marvel. Well, that's the same attitude that's going on here. He's not just saying no. He's saying, I cannot believe that anyone would even think this. So what does the law accomplish? Verse 22, we are locked up. The scripture tells us, and here in verse 22, when it says scripture, it's just another reference to the law. It tells us that we are confined. Everyone is confined under sin. And this word confined means to be shut up, locked up securely, enclosed on all sides with no means of escape. This is our situation. What has the law accomplished? It has accomplished you being locked up. Read Romans 7 verses 9 through 11. Read Romans 8 verse 2. There you'll find that Paul says the covenant that Moses brought and the law was the law of sin and death. The second thing that it accomplishes, shattering and pulverizing. The law is God's sledgehammer. It shatters our self-righteousness and it pulverizes your pride. You see, the Holy Spirit is the one to wield this mighty hammer. And until you are smashed against the demands of the law, you will never recognize your need for a savior. Third thing that happens, visualizing the value visualizing the value, the purpose of being locked up, the purpose of being shattered, the purpose of being driven to such despair is that we would be given this promise by faith in Jesus Christ. In verse 22, there's two words that are used here, kind of a duplicate of words. It says by faith, and it goes on and it said, given to those who believe, faith and believe, There's a similarity in the words 
faith and believe. But Paul is also pointing out that the object of the faith of that belief is the promise. And this promise is, of course, Jesus Christ. Verses 17 and 18 tell us the law does not do away with the promise, but that the inheritance was given by promise. We are partakers in the inheritance because of Christ. And I would submit for your consideration that it is an inheritance of grace. It was grace from the start, and it will be amazing grace that will see us home. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, it is only when one submits to the law and that one can speak of grace. By this quotation, he meant that we should submit to what the law tells us. And it tells us that our sin goes all the way to the bone, so to speak. It goes all the way through. It's right down to the very fiber of our being, right down into our hearts, who we really are. And only when you see that, only when you can agree with God on this, that's the only way that you will ever hunger and thirst for righteousness, according to Matthew 5, 6. And that kind of righteousness, friends, it's not our own Martin Luther said this, only when a person's sin is disclosed and increased through the law does he begin to see the wickedness of the human heart and its hostility towards both the law and its author, who is God. Only then does the person realize that not only does he not love, but he hates and blasphemes God. And as a result, he is forced to confess that there is nothing good in him at all. When the law forces us to acknowledge and confess our sins in this way, it has fulfilled its function and is no longer needed because the moment of grace has come. Friends, I hope and pray that this has been helpful to you. I hope and pray that I have caused you to think about some things, maybe in a different way. Most of all, I hope that you can see that the promise of God is superior to the law of God. The promise of God rests on him alone. That's why Christ went to the cross. That's why your salvation cannot be earned. It's already been paid for. Receive the free gift of salvation through faith alone and Christ alone. Jesus is the answer of all the world today. Above us, there's no Discouragement and peace you cannot buy. Reflections of the 